Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to this episode of Risking Enchantment. I'm your host, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Phoebe Watson. Hi guys! We're back, well I'm back in Ireland, Phoebe didn't leave, um, and we're uh, cosied up in my room, which still has a few Christmas lights draped around it, and we've got cups of tea. It's biscuit brew. It's not just tea, it's biscuit brew. So this is a uh, leftover of my trip to Cumbria, which is a lovely box of Yorkshire tea biscuit brew, which is just a type of regular black tea that has the taste of biscuits in it and it is just as delightful as that sounds. <laughs> and you can't get it anywhere but the north of England. Which is Sadly. which is why I have to keep going back there. Naturally. Not just to see my friends. It's all about the biscuit brew. Of course. But this is all working in our favour today because it's a very cosy setting for quite a cosy topic, I think. Um the topic for today that we're going to talk about is what I'm terming the sanctity of smallness, which is we're going to take a look at some books and some examples of literature which I think really celebrate a small and a simple life. Yeah, when you mentioned this topic to me, I just laughed for a good two minutes. Not because it's a funny topic, but it's because it's so you. I know. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's very me. If you could see my room right now, you'd see all kinds of cards and illustrations of lovely, cute, small things. But for this particular podcast we're going to talk about, I know you all know that I'm an enormous Tolkien fan, so of course we're going to talk about The Shire and The Hobbits. No. No, we're not going to talk about them. Yet. Yet. <laughs> but... In terms of a, a little funny run-up to this, I was once talking with a friend of mine. Her name's Zoe, and I think she's listening, so hi, Zoe. And I met Zoe through the fact that we're both enormous Tolkien fans. And despite that, we both agreed that the one fictional world that we would like to live in the most is actually the world of Brambley Hedge. And if you've been listening since the start, you might actually recognise the name Brambley Hedge. If you're very cool, you might have actually known Brambley Hedge before this podcast, but most people haven't heard of it. And I like to think that I'm setting myself a little bit of a challenge. So in the first podcast, we talked about three books that re or pieces of art that really define us and uh, represent our personalities. And I picked Tolkien, Flannery O'Connor and Brambley Hedge. And despite the fact that the first two are actually Catholic authors. The first one we're going to do a Catholic podcast on is Brambley Hedge. <laughs> As it should be. So for anyone who doesn't know who, what is Brambley Hedge, Brambley Hedge is a series of children's stories. They're also a delightful stop-motion animation series about the lives and the ups and downs of a little community of mice who live in a small community called Brambley Hedge. Uh, if you're trying to picture it in your mind, it's very, the illustration style is very similar to Beatrix Potter, except that it's actually, I would consider it a lot richer, it's got a lot more detail. The author, Jill Barklam, who is also the illustrator, goes through really detailed maps of the the community of the different trees where the different family lives and in each of them they, you can see their houses and how they're all different and there's strings of crab apples and there's pots of jam and it's all very detailed and very beautiful and one of the things that always strikes me is the level of detail around the 
the crafts like she always draws these beautiful quilts and these like handmade toys and it's really really beautiful and in terms of like again drawing from the the reference point of Beatrix Potter I find the stories pretty different I always I never actually got on that well with Beatrix Potter when I was a child that anyone who rereads them as an adult usually finds that they're pretty dark they're usually stories about people who do something wrong and the bad things that happen to them when they do something wrong. Lovely. <laughs> I haven't reread these since I was like five. Yeah, so. well, you know, like Squirrel Nutkin loses his tail and um, Peter Rabbit gets sick from running away and like all of those things. So whereas Bramby Hedge is a lot, you know, people do get into scrapes or get into sticky situations, but it's a lot, it's a lot less didactic and a lot less moralistic. It's more just about... Um, looking at this community and kind of falling in love with it and falling in love with their way of life and I adore it I've got Bramley Hedge teacups I've got Bramley Hedge postcards and I've got a lovely compendium of Bramley Hedge stories from none other than Phoebe sitting next to me but the most important thing that I think is so enchanting about Bramley Hedge is their way of life and they're in each of the stories, they it's usually centered around a particular community celebration, where whether they're dragging the, an enormous Yule log into the fire for them to burn for the winter, or building an ice palace, or um, they have a wedding in one of them. There's this real sense of home life and of tight knit community life, and this closeness. Obviously, they're mice, so closeness to the earth and the the work that they do with their hands, and it's just a really uplifting example of like simple living and it's a real like it really cherishes that simple living and if you're wondering what that might have to do with faith uh, I think it's because I I love how Jesus and our Catholic faith calls us to really cherish our daily lives and cherish the moments and, and offer up those moments and love them so of course there's an element of uh, our faith that has us going out and doing big things and bold moves and going to the other side of the world to serve people in a completely different culture than your own and that's all a really beautiful part of our faith but even in the middle of that you can still cherish the little moments and also for most of us most of our lives are are fairly routine and mundane and in a way small um, and it's just a wonderful thing to take the time and love where you're at and really foster a sense of love and community and um, I'm going to say liturgy but I mean more of a like a, a sense of seasons and moments of celebration and marking moments as they go past. So that's what we want to talk today, that's what I'm terming the sanctity of smallness and I think when you talk about something like that you kind of can't get away from Therese of Lisieux. I mean the little flower. Uh, she's kind of the embodiment of that idea of the beautiful in the little. Yeah, wasn't it? Um, I only know this quote from Bishop Barron talking about it. Yeah. He talks about her describing great saints marching ahead and her as a little child lifting her arms up to God and then going, but then I get further than any of you. <laughs> I love that image, yeah, that she, she really celebrates in being the little small one. Um, yeah. It's really great. Does that mean I get to quote her? Yes, go ahead. So, uh, one of my favourite images of Therese of, is that she's talking about how she's offering up 
the small little pains of her daily life uh, and turning them into flowers for the Lord. Uh, which I think is a pretty common illustration, but it's really beautiful. And one of the passages I read recently when I was looking for the main quote, but what I found instead was a description of her being blamed for breaking a vase or for having put it in somewhere stupid where it got broken and her just taking that mm-hmm. and resisting the temptation to say, oh, no, it wasn't me. Yeah, to push back, to yeah. just accept it. To just accept that and then making that a little offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that actually really explained the theology of offer it up. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting way of looking at yeah. it. Yeah, and then even little things of like smiling at a sister that she finds really difficult mm-hmm. to get on with and by that expression of love, yeah, coming to love that sister better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and obviously she's so famous for what the little way, isn't it? Yeah, it's the little way. It's her idea of how ordinary people can become saints. Um, and in terms of simplicity, one of the quotes from her book, um, she's talking about spiritual direction and finding it hard. And one of the older mothers in the community says to her, I don't suppose that you ever have very much to tell to your superiors. What makes you think that, mother? Because you have an extremely simple soul. However, it will be even more simple when you become perfect. The closer we come to God, the more simple we become. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And it it also, I've got another saint quote picked out, which is from St. Vincent de Paul, which says, Simplicity ought to be held in great esteem. It is a virtue most worthy of love because it leads us straight to the kingdom of heaven. Which is why I think it's such a nice thing to have these books, especially for children to grow up with this, this love of the simple and this love of um, the people around you and the the most immediate way of loving, not loving, you know, the way there's, I think it's a GK Chesterton quote where, where he's talking about how um, we're called to love our neighbours as well as our enemies, probably because the two are the same. That uh, it's not about loving. It's not about loving humanity. That God never asks us to love humanity. He asks us to love our neighbour. This really like personal connection. Um, and obviously, I know for a lot of children's literature, the idea of like a homestead or a small community is fairly recurrent because obviously that's what children know. Um, but. I think it's telling that there's a, sen- a sense of nostalgia around these things when we grow up that we understand the world as children as a very, in a way, simple thing. And then it, we grow up and it gets a lot more complicated and we have different ambitions and we want to go off and do other things. And, you know, we have to manage all of these expectations of ourselves and of other people. And that there is this kind of deep desire and deep yearning to achieve that simplicity and that simplicity of living. And I just think in a way that reading these these stories of small little moments between mice in a hedgerow that they remind us that there is a, a simplicity that is is good and that we can aim at in our lives that that God is in a way calling us to these these simple communities i think they really teach us in a very gentle way how to bring that love of simplicity or love of human, like humanity in the neighbour, mm-hmm. into our own lives yeah, as well. Absolutely, and I think one of both me and Phoebe have, I think, the same favourite quote from the Screw Tape Letters, which Phoebe's going to read out now, which also kind of shows how having these simple pleasures and these simple loves can really bring us actually closer to God. 
Yeah, and as with C.S. Lewis, it couldn't possibly be a two-line quote. No, it has to be a giant chunk, so I'm sorry about this, but we, we cut it down as much as we could, but we just love this section so much. So just to obviously set it up in case anyone doesn't know what the Screwtape Letters is, it's about two devils who are writing to each other and one is informing them how to pull a particular person away from God. Yeah, the devil Screwtape yeah. is writing to this younger devil um, who is specifically assigned to tempt this particular person away. Um, now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book that he really enjoyed. Because he enjoyed it, and not in order to make clever remarks about it to his new friends. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through the country that he really likes and taken alone. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant so as not to see the danger of this? The characteristics of pain and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real, and therefore, as far as they go, Give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. You were trying to damn your patient by the world. That is, by palming off vanity, bustle, irony, and expensive tedium as pleasures. How can you fail to see that a real pleasure was the last thing you ought to have let him meet? Didn't you foresee that it would just kill by contrast all the trumpery which you had been so laboriously trying to teach him to value? And that sort of pleasure which the book and the walk gave him was the most dangerous of all. That it would peel off from his sensibility the kind of crust which you had been forming on it and make him feel that he was really coming home, recovering himself. As a preliminary to detaching himself from the enemy, you wanted to detach him from himself and had made some progress in doing so. Now all that is undone. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point, which the enemy has furnished him. To get him away from those, it is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world, or convention, or fashion, for a, a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin, even if it is something quite trivial, such as a fondness for country cricket, or collecting stamps, or drinking cocoa. Such things, I grant you, have nothing of virtue in them, but there is a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world, for its own sake, and without caring two pence what other people say about it, is by very fact forearmed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favour of the best people, the right food, the important books. I have known a human defended from strong temptations to social ambition by a still stronger taste for tripe and onions. Well done. That was I know that was a really long thing to read out, but I both of us are just so in love with that whole section. It's so like exciting to hear about how the 
even something that isn't moral, like he says, like drinking cocoa or collecting stamps, like th those aren't things that you're going to take with you to heaven or they're not going to be counted up in your number of virtues. But the fact that you really like them is in a way it comes from God because there's there's no reason to like them other than the fact that you like them. You're not, it's not coming from someone else. It's just coming from within you. And obviously that's, that's fostered by God. Yeah. That reminds me actually of something Father Peter was saying at our retreat mm -hmm. of how we, in all our idiosyncrasies and foibles, mm -hmm. bring that to what we do for God. Yeah. And he rejoices in those. And those are part of the mission that he's built into, in for us. Yeah. And that there's a, isn't there another quote, which is that you have to be the saint that you are and not someone else. Yeah. Um, which it goes into all of these little things. And what we're not saying is that you can't have big ambitions or that you shouldn't want to do big things for Christ, but that rather that you're missing something if you're so caught up in like a, a heady world of ideas or what the world thinks or even your own plans that you, you miss the present moment and the present people in front of you to love and the present community that you have to serve. Or that you think that you're not doing something for God if you're not doing something big. Yeah. I mean, there should never be an excuse not to do something big. Yeah. But I think also when you do the small well, mm -hmm. it grows into the big. Like for me, I think, when I think of like relig religious vocations, and I'm particularly thinking of religious sisters, um, and, and monks as well, that in some ways it's such a big vocation and they, they, they leave everything and they have to sacrifice so much to go and live this life. But the life that they're living is a life of perfecting the simple routine. Mm, very true, that's I, I and would... the more extreme of them are the more simple of them. Yeah, and that kind of casting off of the noise, which is, it's there's so much noise in the world today that it's so easy to spend your whole life listening to someone's opinion on politics or someone's opinion on this. And I mean, one of the kind of really obvious things that we could be talking about right now is the is the need for a smallness in terms of like economics. Like when we talk about communities and when we talk about real living, there's a sense that maybe that's, not the same as a big rat race or a push for progress and yeah. or environmental simplicity or yeah that like there is definitely a really powerful connection between the way that we live and the way that we exist in terms of a world of like commerce or like um systems of governance and things like that and those are all really really important things i'm i don't think we're going to go into them that closely here just because there are people who could talk about it far better than us this is not something that we would necessarily have the most expert opinions on but a few things that i am going to mention which i think are really great kind of resources was there was uh there's a book called small is beautiful with the subtitle economics as if people mattered Aww. um which is it's a really famous book actually and it was written by ef schumacher who was actually a convert to catholicism and he com he converted about two years before he wrote it and continued to be a really well-regarded and well-acclaimed economist and i i've read parts of it and it's actually really accessible and it's a really really lovely and intelligent way of looking at economics and looking at other ways of making societies work and fostering good communities and fostering good business and, and good progress. But it's it's really, really nice and I'd really recommend it. The other one I'd say is I know Joseph Pieper has written quite a lot on leisure and the basis of culture and things like that. And then, of course, there's always 
the last three popes, or pretty much the last, <laughs> I, I'm sure you could name even more popes than this, but um, John Paul II, Benedict XVI and Francis have all spoken at length. Um, I particularly love some of Benedict's things about um, the need to stay away from the graspingness and the clutchingness of constantly attaining more material wealth and trying to uh, focus solely on the consumerism and, and how that's so damaging, not only to others, not only to the environment, but also to ourselves and to our soul. That there's there's some really beautiful things in there that are so well informed and so interesting and definitely something that everyone should check out. But for this podcast, I think we're going to focus more on how it affects your soul, just yourself and not uh, focusing on the way it affects the the wider world and then talk about books yes oh, i'm gonna i'm circling back around to books just now but before we do anything i need to quote c.s lewis again <laughs> naturally <laughs> um so this is from uh, the weight of glory and it really kind of sums up what i was saying he says as long as we are thinking of natural values we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal or two friends talking over a pint of beer or a man alone reading a book that interests him, and that all economies, politics, laws, armies, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere ploughing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of the spirit. Collective activities are, of course, necessary, but this is the end to which they are necessary. I love it. It's great. I mean... Like, we should just have a podcast where C.S. Lewis tells us all how to live our lives. Naturally. <laughs> From the Oxford Dawn. Yes, exactly. So, now that we've set up why it's important to foster a love of these kinds of stories, we're going to give some more examples of them. So, Phoebe, do you want to go first? What, uh, other than the very acclaimed and weighty tome of Brambley Hedge, what would you recommend for fostering a love of the simple life? Well, I believe I also spoke about this in our very first episode, mm -hmm. but I was thinking about Anne of Green Gables. Yes, naturally. Of course. And again, it's very local, parish-based, and it's watching a girl grow. Yeah. And I think a lot of the beauty of it is watching the simple mistakes that she makes and the joy that she finds and even being able to incorporate that into growing to be better people ourselves. Yeah, I, lo I love it. And I love how much, again, there's usually a, a, a fairly common theme with a lot of these stories, which is a closeness to nature, because I love the descriptions of nature yeah. in Anna Green Gables. I think that's fitting, because I think most people feel like when they get stressed out and when they get caught up in the world, the thing that they want to do is get back to nature. And in a way that's obviously God works through us to build incredible things, but creation is what he specifically created as well yeah um, it's also how that beautiful creation setting that she's set in with the beauty yeah but more importantly the love that she's given yeah and the support that she's given allow her to flourish and grow and it's also beautiful she's you see actually start off with her as a 13 year old i think yeah she feels much younger yeah like it feels like you could be taking her from the age of eight but that that's a, that's a nice age as well in terms of yeah. So there's an innocence but also a maturity like a maturity and a sorrow about the isolation of her childhood. And I think for me one of the things that really shows that is actually through the way that she interacts with nature because 
typically when she first arrives and whenever she sort of gets too caught up in her own her own imaginings and her own versions of the world she imagines the world around her to be sort of away from where she's actually at like it's uh when she arrives as an orphan it's kind of like she wants to live in this imaginary world that isn't real whereas when she's most at home and most settled she's kind of more just loving what's actually there and of course it's it is actually a beautiful setting and that's one of the things that she really loves is that she actually gets to live somewhere beautiful whereas where she lived before was very sad and drab and and horrible but whereas this is actually beautiful but I love that sense of her actually being present to the actual surroundings in a way and definitely enhancing them with her own imagination but it's still an actual cherishing of the trees that are really there and not just the the ones that are in her imagination. I think I'm gonna have to read a quote. Another one? Another one! Well even, I just love the first two sentences of this chapter. Anne was bringing the cows home from the back pasture by way of Lover's Lane. It was a September evening and all the gaps and clearings in the wood were brimmed up with a ruby sunset light. Beautiful. And I love the mixture of the lover's lane and bringing the cows home. Yeah, there's that mundaneness coupled with the the beauty. And I think that's also important because I think it's important to say that we're not saying if you live a nice simple life nothing bad will ever happen and you won't have any troubles or trials. That's not at all what we're saying. And I mean, that's exactly what we were saying with... St. Therese, which is that we have to offer up the small sufferings and that we can often characterise our lives by the moments when we have big sufferings, but that even the small sufferings in our life are worth bringing to God and are worth being transformed by him into something beautiful so that, you know, the the boringness of bringing the cows home can be transfigured into the beauty of Lover's Lane. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I in in terms of tone, the one that I'm going to do next is a little bit similar. It, the storyline is kind of similar, which is Good Night Mr. Tom. Oh. Which is one of my all-time favorite books. It's probably it might actually be the book I've reread the most times. I adore that book. So, it's the story of young Will who is taken out of London during the Blitz and sent to live in the countryside in Little Weirwald, which is a very romantic name for a for a town. And he goes to live with a sort of gruff old man and uh, Willie is quite like a small sickly boy and he's been quite abused by his mother and it's he comes very afraid and very unwell and very unsure of himself. And Mr. Tom is this kind of gruff figure who doesn't want to talk to anyone and the two of them soften each other's edges and open each other up for love but the setting even in gruff Mr. Tom's house is so beautiful and cosy and he's got Sam the dog and that he lives in a little house next to the graveyard and they have I always remember there's that really vivid image when he shows up of um Mr. Tom making him a bacon sandwich and the like just it's just so visceral the the like the fat seeping into the white the white fluffy bread and there's a there's a lot to do with painting and like just the bright colors and there's this real beautiful simplicity to that life and that it's full of color and it's full of those small joys and that like the community of people rallying around this little boy yeah, I was going to say that the friends he makes and yeah. the different like 
is it, is it the doctor who sends the ju- the jumpers for him? Yes, and... and then they go blackberry picking, yeah. and yeah, they has to wear all of the the clothes cobbled together from people around yeah. the the town and or the little village, and yeah, it's it's really really sweet, and it it works because it it would be saccharine if it weren't for the fact that both Willie, who obviously is coming from a very difficult background, but also the fact that they're in the middle of a war and there are people who should be part of the community that are in this battle and who might be dying. And there's, I, I've never cried so hard at anything that I have reading Goodnight Mr. Tom, which I was reading when I was not supposed to be reading it. I read it right before my English exam where I was answering questions on a different book so my mum was furious that I'd started reading a book that wasn't on my exam papers so I remember locking the bathroom door so that I could keep reading it and then I got to the bit where um there's a there's quite a climactic bit at the end which is very sad and I was just crying and mum called for dinner and I was like what am I gonna do (laughs) Um, but I adore that book it's so good but it it works because you are in love with both the main characters but also their setting and the people that they're around and you you just you want this for them and you want them to be opened up to love it more than they do because both of them are quite emotionally closed off so yeah that's that's my second one good night mr tom i think my second was following on from anna green gables the next book that came to mind with little women yeah, they're kind of of an ilk, aren't yeah. they? And with that is a more uncommon one. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's called no. What Katie Did. No. It's by a lady called Susan Coolridge. What Katie Did is about this rather wild 12-year-old girl mm-hmm. with um, six siblings and their mothers died, so their aunts are looking after them. It's like she's looking after the house Yeah. Um, for while well, the father is a doctor. Yeah. And... They don't get on very well with the aunt, but then Katie hurts her back on, off a swing. Yeah. And she has to lie flat in bed mm-hmm. for two years or something like that. Wow. Um, they don't even know if she's ever going to be able to walk again. And it's kind of about her learning through that. Mm-hmm. And there's a cousin, an older cousin in that who is crippled for life and mm-hmm. um, who, like visits them carried on her sofa. Yeah. And how she brings like a beauty and a joy to the family even through like even despite the fact she's on a sofa, she's still the centre point around which yeah. the house turns. Mm-hmm. And she speaks to Katie and says, Well, you can lie there becoming miserable and everyone will avoid you because they don't want to be in this room. Yeah. Or you can make the room pretty, you can open up the blinds even if it hurts your what it hurts your eyes, brush your hair, mm-hmm. and welcome everyone here, and they will come here and yeah. centre them their lives around you. That's beautiful. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of her trials, and then um, after a while, the aunt, aunt dies, and she's then trying to do like the management of the house, yeah. like the logistics of what are we going to have for dinner, yeah. and like her trials in that and her yeah. trials and kind of trying to manage the younger ones a bit and mm-hmm. yeah it's lovely that's so nice i i've only read anne of green gables i have seen a version of uh, little women but they in my mind even though i haven't read them they're all like in the same bracket uh but that's really really nice yeah and i think what katie little women is um even what you're saying about the war and 
Yeah. Like, Little Women is similar in that it's set in the American Civil War. Yeah. So the fathers are fighting and the mother's left with four daughters mm-hmm. to look after. And it's her, it's Marmy's kind of efforts to teach her children to be better. Yeah. And them kind of drawing out the friends next door. Which yeah. Is really beautiful as well. That's really nice. My next one is not actually a book. It's an essay by Hilaire Belloc. And I know we're kind of just out of the Christmas season, but I'm I'm afraid I'm a little slow on my Christmas reading this year, so I didn't get around to it until at the very end, which was reading an essay called um, A Remaining Christmas. It's just uh, an essay where he goes through the traditions of his own family in celebrating Christmas and how people are, even in his own time, saying that, oh, the old ways are gone and there's no such thing as a real Christmas anymore and and nobody knows how to celebrate it properly and everything that we had kind of built up before this has been scattered. And so he's saying that this is a remaining Christmas. This is the the, the remains of a real tradition and a real love of festivity and, and at that sense of interwovenness with everything. So it, it's a, a largely a, a description of his own house um, and then the kind of ins and outs of what happens at Christmas time. But it's just so enchanting and so... And he's so aware of the fact that he's trying to make something enchanting. So I, I kind of... I, I love it for that as well. Um, but just to read like a little line from it, Uh, He's saying about the kids playing there at Christmas and he says these songs are game songs and are sung to keep time with the various parts in each game and the men and things and animals which you hear mentioned in these songs are all of that countryside. Indeed the tradition of Christmas here is what it should be everywhere knit into the very stuff of the place so that I fancy the little children, when they think of Bethlehem, see it in their minds as though it were in the winter depth of England, which is as it should be. Which I just love that, like, in a way about making it personal to you, because not everyone's idea of a simple and a good life is going to be the same. And I'm going to touch again on that. There's another quote that I wanted to add, which was, this which I have just described is not in a novel or in a play. It is real and goes on as the ordinary habit of living men and women. I fear that set down thus in our terribly changing time, it must sound very strange and, perhaps in places, grotesque. But to those who practice it, it is not only sacred, but normal, having in the whole of the complicated affair a sacramental quality and an effect of benediction not to be despised. Um, which is kind of at the core of what we're saying, that these small routines and these small sacrifices that we make can be a form of benediction, that there's like a holiness to them, even in their meagerness and in their humbleness. Um, And again, I know we've just come out of Christmas, but that is kind of the idea of Christmas, that the humbling, that that Christ would come as something so small and so humble that that it's almost unthinkable, you know? And so, in doing so, sanctifies all of the small things of our lives. I heard a great quote about Christ becoming man and related to the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. which was, um, well, if God can become a man, can't he also become a piece of bread? Yeah. (laughs) Which, to me, really helped to also slot into place 
the unimaginable jump mm-hmm. of God to man. Yeah. That is, because in some ways we find it, because we read about like being made in God's image, we think that God to man bit is really simple and straightforward and even obvious when it's not at all. That's so cool. I really, really love that. But just to return to one of the points I was making about how it's not going to look the same to everyone, there's one thing that I did want to bring up, which is that obviously the examples that we've given here are largely English, British, well, mine American, are American. I was just going to say American, Canadian, but there's a kind of, I guess you would call it Western, but there's a huge range of things that can evoke this for all kinds of people and if you feel it like I I just think that we can look so far and see so many things like for me one of the best examples of it is in a lot of the Studio Ghibli films. I was just thinking that (laughs) though to be honest the best example that came immediately to mind was Howl's Moving Castle. That's what I was thinking. based on a novel by an English woman. Well, maybe we're cutting corners then. But I also, amazingly, I feel it in Spirited Away. Absolutely. Which, which you kind of shouldn't because she's sort of living in a nightmare world. But again, there's that like that pulling together and that, that I, I always love those scenes where she's like absolutely munching down on some rice and it's just, it's a very human moment. And I love, love, love those films. Have you ever seen um, Kiki's Delivery Service? No, I haven't yet. One of the lovely things about it is how homely it makes her magic. Yeah. Like she's flying around on a broomstick. Yeah. But she's running this little delivery service. Yeah. And it's really cute. I can't remember that much of it. That kind of medley of the magical and the normal, mm-hmm. the mundane. Um, and the other example I have is I particularly love the illustrations of a Swedish artist. His name was Carl Larsson, and he was part of the arts and, arts and craft movement. But he really embodies that beautiful colours and like the joy and the exuberance of home life. So I, I really enjoy those as well. But I would also love, like if anyone listening has examples of any kind, but particularly from all over the world, I would love to find out more and to have a kind of bigger scope for this. So I really love those, the finding the new versions of like a homeliness that I hadn't thought of before. I actually just thought of one. Mm. Uh, it's a book called Journey to the River Sea. Okay. Um, it's about a girl who travels out from an English boarding school to the Amazon mm-hmm. to live with her cousins. Yeah. And I mean, her cousins are really mean, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of a counterbalance of, like, a harsh home environment with a beautiful Amazon setting and then, like, a beautiful community that's backing her up. Yeah. In spite of the cousins. Yeah. That's... Yeah, you see, that's beautiful. So I think, do you have any other examples that you wanted to? Well, I was thinking of, I think I might have mentioned this in another podcast, but The Wise Woman by by George MacDonald. Yeah. Um, I, it's the one straight after The Shadow Okay. Um, story. But it's about this witch woman, kind of, mm-hmm. um, who's called in to help the king and queen with their unruly princess daughter. Mm-hmm. And there's another unruly child who's a shepherdess like a shepherd and a shepherdess's child mm-hmm. and there's kind of like a real hominess to both of their scenes and they end up kind of being switched in place to a certain extent and mm-hmm. the wise woman is trying to cure the princess of her temper tantrums yeah um by very simple means of like well in this room like she's locked kind of locked in the house um, or 
partly she's afraid to go outside because there are wolves outside. Mm-hmm. And she's told, if you do your chores and clean the place, you get fed. Yeah. Or for the first day she gets fed regardless. Mm-hmm. And then the next day she doesn't get fed because she hasn't done her chores. And even that kind of like simplicity of a good education. Yeah, and of learning. Learning yeah. how to be in, in that kind of space. Yeah. Though I think the best thing about that was it had gone on for quite a while, this kind of education about it. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, and now you're only at the beginning. <laughs> Which for me was great because often those can kind of seem like a quick fix. Yeah. And it wasn't. Yeah. It was like... And now we're going to send you here for two years. Because you okay. still haven't learned this properly. Okay, that's really cool. That's, uh, yeah. yeah. I, again, I said it last time, I still haven't read it, but I will, I will get to read George MacDonald very soon. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Well, okay, so I think that's pretty much everything we want to say on the, the sanctity of smallness. I think we didn't talk about the dangers of it. Oh, yeah, did way. you want to, to bring that up a little bit? Well, I was kind of thinking... Just I, actually, this is where the Shire ties in. Yeah. Of um, Bilbo having been driven out of the Shire mm. for his adventure. Yeah. And I think that is the counterbalancing danger. Yeah. Of in where it's orientated towards God. Yeah. It's good, and like anything, when it's orientated towards ourselves and our it's own not. comforts and our own lack of willingness to engage with the world or go out and, and do the thing that's being asked of us and do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. If it becomes a, I don't want to leave my bubble. Yeah. I don't want to leave my cosy space. Yeah. Then there's a problem. Yeah. I I, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point because like I said at the start, in some ways the, the hobbits are sort of the, the ultimate version of this, but they, they do take it to that extreme. They're too complacent. They're too self-involved. And I think, because I, I, I was thinking of this and I was thinking of when we're talking about even like the worldliness and the economic side that for me anyway, the thing that I see a lot is that we're, there's so many people, including myself, that are so caught up in the lives of famous people who are famous for no reason and they live in a different continent to me and like I don't know why I, I need to know about them <laughs> and why that should detract me from what I'm doing right here and now. And that there is a balance because we're we are called to be in the world but not of the world isn't that it yeah and then i would argue that there's a t- there are times when your knowledge of such things mm-hmm. leads to better community yeah because that's what we chat about yeah yeah and so it is about striking that that balance i'm not telling everyone that they need to go live in the hedgerows and Become mice. And yeah, give up their phone or give up. I mean, I think the main reason, coming back to how you started, why Mm -hmm. this was your ideal world to live in, Mm -hmm. is because there are no dangerous adventures. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They're they're very small and self-contained and they're very straightforward in some ways. They get, at one point, some of the the mice get lost for a whole night. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's true. It's quite a small world. But there is definitely a danger in keeping your world too small. And it, it is a balance that you have to strike your whole life. And I, I think that's kind of the exciting thing. The, the, the point that I would make is that I was thinking of, I know, we've quoted C.S. Lewis so much already, I know. But, well, at least I only quoted him once, which is what my rule was. <laughs> <laughs> but that, to me, one of the most magical bits in, uh, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, 
Um, so she's come to a magical land, it's covered in snow and everything's very exotic. But the magical bits aren't the bits where you meet the, the white witch or the, even the bits in her castle. It's when she's having tea and toast in Mr. Tumnus's house uh, or when they're all with the beavers and they're having dinner together. So it's, it's almost like she goes out on this adventure or they go out on this adventure and while they're out there they have these moments where they can really cherish and love the simple things. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good way of balancing it. Yeah. That the balance of the big and the small together yeah. allow you to cherish the small. Yeah, that she had to... Because in some ways, even though like you would think at the start of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, they're in this big house, and that's quite like nicely described, but I... I don't ever think of like, oh, I'd love to go to the big house in, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Of course, you want to go to Narnia. but Priorities, the, people. I mean, I will say, as I've said before, I do like the house at the start of uh, The Magi- Magician's Nephew, but that does seem a little bit more magical to me. But the romance of having tea and toast in a little dry cave comes from the fact that she's in a whole new world with a whole new person and it's exciting and she's put herself out there in a way to experience this. So I think that's maybe a nice way of like striking a balance between the two. Very much agreed. Alrighty then. We only I don't know if you remember this, Phoebe, but we that leaves us with one last question, which is what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, I'm still reading The Once a Future King. After all this time. <laughs> After all this time. <laughs> much to your annoyance. <laughs> um So I was actually thinking of what we watched last week, which was the Restoring British Landmarks programme. Oh, interesting. I'm going to have a similar answer, actually. Oops. Um, And even I think it fits in with in terms of cosy as well, because it's just this documentary series about a charity trust restoring old buildings. Yeah. And going into them and figuring out how they can keep them and trying to rebuild parts of them. It's just really cute yeah, and nice a, and the music's great yeah um, it's a really great series um it's uh, it should be if you're in the uk or ireland it's uh, i believe it's on the all four website i don't know if that's in america but if you go to channel four they have a lot of their programs online so that you can just watch them it's about a year and a half or two years yeah old. yeah they have the they yeah have, they have no i'm just saying ones. that to clarify if anyone's yes. looking for it as a recent <laughs> thing no. we tape this and are only now finishing it yeah we don't get around to watching a lot of tv which is a sh- which is a shame because we've clearly we've nice things taped but um on a similar note i've been trying to uh for the thing that i'm enjoying at the moment i'm trying to uplift my social media a little bit and and have nicer things in it so I've been watching a lot of art restoration videos um and there's one channel in particular called Baumgartner Restoration where it he just takes paintings and restores them and like he narrates what he's doing and like how the different elements works and how he strips the varnish and but it's really very fascinating for me to see these painting sort of re-emerge out of the dirt of ages and to be lovingly brought back into a space where they can be really enjoyed and really loved so I'm, I'm really enjoying that so that's just on YouTube but the other update as I I'm sure you were all waiting with bated breath I have in fact finished The Count of Monte Cristo <laughs> um, and I can give it my full stamp of approval it was excellent I really really enjoyed it I would recommend all 52 hours of it um, it was great from start to finish um, so that's that's another achievement unlocked uh, it's a it's a good start of the year it, it makes me feel really happy because it means I get to write in my diary that I've read like a, a thousand page book 
at the start of my year, even though I've been listening to it for about three months at this point. <laughs> um, so that's a little ego, ego boost for me. So with that, I think we've just one last thing we want to say before we leave. Other than to say, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, we'd really love it if you could uh, leave a rating or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It really helps us reach more people. So if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. So I think we're going to say goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.